You're listening to GlendaleCC.org and to the Glendale Christian KY podcast on iTunes. This week, Senior Minister Adam Hale begins a new sermon series on the book of Judges. Thank you for listening, and as always, we hope that this message encourages you in your walk to love and follow Jesus. Take care and have a great week. Well, good morning. Thanks for being here today. Glad to have you with us. Today we're beginning a new sermon series called the Book of Judges, or called the Judges. We got real creative with our sermon title for this series. Uh, couldn't come up with anything better, so we just said we'll go with the Judges. And so as you might have guessed, we'll be looking at the Old Testament book of the Book of Judges. And if you're using Right Now Media, which I would encourage all of you to be on, it's free to, to anybody in this room. Um, if you need access to it, just let me know and, I, and I'll make sure you get it. But if you're using Right Now Media, there is a series, a Bible study series on the book of Judges, and that was actually the, the trailer for it. It's by J.D. Greer, and it is fantastic, and it is, would be an ec- excellent supplement to what we're going to be talking about over the next several weeks on Sunday morning. But enough about that. Let's get right into to the message this morning. Oftentimes, you know, the Bible is accused of being outdated and irrelevant how many of you have heard even in the last let's just say the last two years somebody criticized uh, the church the bible uh, maybe it's on tv maybe you heard it from a news figure or or some talking head that said you know the bible is an ancient document it was written thousands of years ago we don't even know that it's all that factually correct it is irrelevant to our life today anybody heard something along those lines I hear that quite a bit. If, if you listen to news shows, it seems like especially news shows, there's always some pundit that is pushing an anti-Bible uh, agenda. And they, they always make that claim that the Bible is outdated and irrelevant. That it doesn't speak to issues that, uh, that take place in the 21st century anymore. And so obviously, as a, as a pastor, I would certainly disagree with that claim, right? And most of you, uh, since you're here this morning, I'm, I'm going to assume that you would disagree with that claim, too, that the Bible does speak to issues relevant in the 21st century. And the book of Judges, as far as Old Testament books go, the book of Judges may be more relevant to our culture and our country as any book in the Bible, uh, but especially one from the Old Testament. There's this phrase that appears time and time and time again in the book of Judges, and it's this. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now, at first glance, you you hear that statement, and you think, well, that's not such a bad thing, right? People are trying to do the right thing. They're trying to do what was right. But it's, it's the last part of that statement that's so troubling. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. What 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 the author of the book of Judges is telling us when he, when he uses that phrase, and it's in there multiple times, what he's telling us is that they didn't use a standard for truth. They did, there wasn't a standard for right and wrong. That Everyone did what was right according to what they felt was right. And, and that's okay as long as everybody's operating on the, under the same umbrella of what is right. But when somebody steps outside of that, well, now they can do what's right, and it's okay because they're doing what is right according to to them. In other words, they say, I can do what I want, when I want, and how I want to do it, because I live by my own standard of truth. If that doesn't speak to American culture and American society, then I don't know what else does, because 
I, I firmly believe that that's how most of us, even Christians, I'll even, I'll even put us in, under that same umbrella too, that that's how most of us live our lives. I'm going to do what I want, when I want, and how I want to do it, and you're, and you're wrong to tell me otherwise. Jim McGreevy was the governor of New Jersey in the early parts of 2000. And after multiple scandals had erupted in his administration, he was forced to resign. And so on August the 12th, 2004, in his press conference announcing his resignation, he gave this statement. He said, my truth is that I am a gay American. Now, you might, since we're in, in church, you might immediately think that the, the part of that statement that I take issue with is that he says he's a gay American. No, not really. Um, I've been asked multiple times, especially in light of what's happening in the Methodist church, uh, especially this last week, what our response to, to gay people in the church should be. And it's real easy and it's real simple. Love them. Okay. That's, that's the simple truth. Love them. That's what we're, how we're called to respond to, to gay or any other uh, people. What, whether they're gay or not, it really makes no difference. Jesus said, love them. And so that's how we respond. The, the statement here that I take issue with is the first part. He says, my truth. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Truth. What's he mean here? My truth. He has confused the word truth for experience. And oftentimes we find ourselves doing the same thing. We confuse the words truth for experience. Jim McGreevy says my truth. What he means is my experience is that I'm a gay American. Okay, great. Along with thousands of other men and women in the United States. But here he's saying my truth is, in other words, this is how I choose to live my life. And you're wrong to tell me otherwise because this is my truth. Jesus said I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. But notice what Jesus says. He says, I am truth. So our basis for when we, when we ask the question, what is truth? Our basis has to be, well, what did Jesus say about truth? And Jesus said, I am truth. He is the standard of truth. We don't get to have our own personal agenda of what truth is. We just don't. Jesus said, I am truth. And so everything that we, we look at as far as what is truth has to go through this lens, has to go through this filter of what did Jesus say about it? So we can't confuse the words truth for experience. They're not synonyms. They're not synonymous. They're not interchangeable. They're none of those things. Truth is not experience. And experience is not truth. Because everyone has their own experiences. We can't, we can't confuse those. We can't uh, dispute what people experience. We can't. People have their own experiences. But what we can't dispute is what is truth. And living by this creed that everyone does what they think is right in their own eyes has done a couple things. It has eroded truth and it has compromised conviction and it's led to national and cult cultural and more, sp more importantly, spiritual decay. And the book of Judges is a historical account of the Israelite people after they've come out of slavery in Egypt. They, they've wandered through the wilderness, they, they survived slavery, they've survived the wilderness and now they've entered into this new land, this promised land, the land of Canaan. And Moses has died. Moses died way, way back before they got to the promised land. And Joshua is old. And the nation of Israel finds themselves in a new land with new problems to overcome and a leadership that is dying. But they have the same faithful God. And so throughout the book of Judges, what you will see is that there's a cycle that takes place. 
They, they seem to live in this, this constant cycle of there's peace in the land and then Israel rebels against God and so God punishes Israel and Israel cries out for mercy and, and so God raises up a, a, a judge, appoints a judge. The judge delivers the nation of Israel. Israel has peace and then Israel rebels against God. It's this uh, cyclical way of living and, and all throughout the book of Judges, that's what we will see. And what we see is that when God's people fall into unbelief and into idolatry and into apostasy, they, they will because there's no clear leadership. But God remains faithful and brings about a plan to deliver his people from their enemies. Every time that Israel cries out to God in the book of Judges, he seems to raise up a judge who, who delivers them from, from their enemy. And so the book of Judges begins in chapter 1 with, with Israel invading the land of Canaan. And it begins there with the death of Joshua. And this is important to note because Joshua is a sense, in a sense that he's the last connecting point for the Israelites. And he's the, to, to Moses. Moses, if you'll remember your, your Israelite history, Moses is a big deal to the Israelite people. He's the guy that went up on the mountain, got the Ten Commandments. He's the one that went to Pharaoh, said, let my people go. He's the one that led them through the, uh, across the Red Seas, parted the waters. Moses is a big deal in Israelite history. And Moses is dead. In fact, he's been dead for a while now. And Joshua was kind of Moses' right-hand man. In fact, if you go back and you read through Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and, and even parts of Deuteronomy, you'll see that every time Moses has to go in front of somebody, if he has to go before Pharaoh or if he has an important decision to make or he goes before God, he goes up on the mountain, uh, mountaintops, you'll see that Joshua always seems to be somewhere in the mix. Joshua is kind of Moses' right-hand man. He's, he's Moses' hand-picked successor. And Moses has been very intentional about developing Joshua's leadership abilities. Joshua is his guy. And now Joshua has died. And this last connecting point to, to the Mosaic uh, era has died. And they're in a new place with new enemies. And they don't have anybody to lead them. And that's important to point out because we talked about with Moses and his his developing Joshua when you read through the life of Joshua you don't really seem to find that person if Moses is really great at developing leadership Joshua is not so great at it in fact he's Joshua seems to be a great military leader but not so much in uh, interpersonal relationships Joshua doesn't raise up someone who's ready to take his place and so Joshua dies and and before his death in the book of Judges, the Israelites, as they have entered into the land of Canaan, they didn't quite drive out all the inhabitants. God told the Israelites, when you get into this land that I'm going to give you, drive all the people out. Get rid of all of them. This is going to be your land, and it's, you've got to start out fresh. You, you cannot live there with these people. Get rid of all of them. Drive them out. And so they start doing that. And Joshua dies. And so we read in the, in the beginning, the first couple verses of the book of Judges, that, that they start out really well. Uh, Judah, one of the Israelite tribe leaders, comes up and he says, All right, God, who should go out first? Who should go out first into, and conquer this land? And God says, Judah, you go. And, and Judah goes and he, he conquers the area that he's supposed to conquer. And through the first several verses, we see uh, just a list of the different conquests that the Israelite people make. And they start out doing really well. But then they get to verse 21. 
In verse 21 in chapter 1, we see the first of six different tribes who would fail to drive out the people of the lands. They would begin to compromise what God had told them. Remember, God said, get rid of all of them, drive them all out. And they would begin to make excuses for why they couldn't. They said, well, they have, they have iron chariots. We couldn't, we couldn't drive them out. Or they had this or they had that. We couldn't, we couldn't do that. And so they begin to compromise what God had told them, and they just try to outnumber them. They just try to outnumber the other people, and they, they live with them. Uh, some of them, they make slaves, and so they think, oh, you know, it didn't work out so bad. We at least got some free labor out of this. And, and things seem to be, in their minds, going okay. But there was no leader there. There was no Moses. There was no Joshua to call them to repentance because they had not done what God had said. God said, drive them out. Don't live with them. Get rid of them. And that's a very important distinction to make because when God says get rid of them, drive them out, he doesn't mean just go be their neighbor. God meant what he said. And because God meant what he said, there was punishment. There was consequences. So why would this happen? Why would, why would the Israelites begin to, to just try to live with the people there? Why would they just try to outnumber them, even make them slaves? Why would they do this? Well, I think what stands out to me in this is that this is a very important uh, lesson in leadership development that we would be wise to pay attention to. Again, when you read the story of the Israelites and you read through Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, you, you see that Moses did a great job in developing a person to take his place. And then Joshua, though, he doesn't seem to do that. In fact, other than Caleb, who was, who was a contemporary of Joshua, he wasn't a next generation uh, behind Joshua, he was a contemporary with Joshua, we rarely see Joshua developing any leaders. And that becomes problematic for the Israelites because now Joshua is dead and he hasn't prepared anyone to take his place. And notice what, jo- what Judges chapter 2, verses 8 through 11 says. Says Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. Ripe old life. Says after that generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things that he had done for Israel. And so, what was the result of this generation that grew up not acknowledging the Lord? The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight and served the images of Baal. There was no leadership development that was taking place, and so when the last of Joshua's generation died, they turned away from the Lord. So what's that mean for us? Well, let me get real personal with our church. And just for a moment, let me speak specifically to our leadership, and then I'm going to come back to the whole whole congregation, okay? Let me speak just a moment to our elders and our deacons, and let me ask you a question. Who are you developing as a leader? The root of the, of the problems for the nation of Israel started with that they have no leaders. They have nobody who was ready to step up and take over for Joshua when he died. So men that are part of our leadership, who are you pouring into? Who are you developing into leaders for Christ's church? Because there will come a point in time in which you will die. There's coming a point in time where you will get too old to serve in the role that you are in. You just can't do it anymore. So who are you developing? Deacons, who are, who, are you, who are you pouring into service with you? Who are you bringing into service with you? Who are, who are you working alongside? Who are you preparing to, to step in? What member of the next generation are you mentoring? Have you, have you prepared anyone to take your place? Because again, the, the author of Hebrews says it's the point 
undemand wants to die. We can, we can have all the fantasies about death that we can have and, and think, well, you know, people live to be 110 like Joshua. Well, guess what? Everybody has an appointment with death. And so there will be a point in time when you will die. And, and I'll say this as tactfully as possible. Some of you are closer to that point than others. So who are you preparing? I've seen far too many churches, far too many churches, who've had one or two uh, people, men in their, in their church who, were, who loved the Lord, who were God-fearing, good men, but they were not good leaders. But they were the only men who were willing to be leaders, so, they, so the church made them leaders. And then guess what? They got old. And they got real old. And then they died. And the church had an identity crisis because they didn't have any leaders. They didn't have anybody to step up and fill the void that those men had left behind. So, so men who are in our leadership right now, let me, again, let me just ask, who, who are you mentoring? Who are you preparing? Because you will die. That's not a bad thing. Don't, I always tell people, don't threaten me with Jesus. Don't threaten me with heaven. But, but you will die. So who are you preparing now, let me get a little more specific with everyone. So those of you who aren't in leadership, you might have thought, okay, well, I get a pass here. He's not talking to me. No, 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 no. Who, let me ask you, who are you pouring into? Who are you discipling? Who are you bringing to church? Who are you bringing to Jesus? Because let me be clear about this. It is the job of the elders and the deacons and the staff to develop new leaders, but it is the responsibility of everyone, of all Christians, to raise up the next generation of Christians. It is the job of every Christian to hand off the church to the next generation purer than it was when you got it. But here's the problem. Far too often the church isn't handed off from one generation to the next. Far too often we don't... Our churches historically just do a terrible job at this, of handing things off to the next generation. Far too often the church isn't handed off at all. It's taken. We don't hand things off. It gets taken from us. And, the, and, and here's why that happens. Because as we get older... Our flexibility and our elasticity fades, not only, not only physically, but spiritually. As we get older, we, we get more resistant to change, and we become more concrete in our methods, and we become an adversary to the next generation. And when that happens, when, when a church has those generational disputes, and churches have these generational disputes, and one generation becomes an adversary to the next, that younger generation usually takes. It isn't given they take. And what results is heartache and hardships and ultimately a divided church that focuses more on methods and less on people. And that's when people have bad church experiences. I, re I was reading a book this week uh, by Andy Stanley, and he says everyone who has had a, not, not everyone, but most people who've had a bad church experience it was because somebody focused on a view instead of a you. In other words, somebody focused more on a method instead of the person. And I find that to be pretty right on the spot. So here's what I really want to encourage our more mature Christians. Those of you who have been in the faith for a long time, you've been in church for as long as you can remember, you're, you're on that end where you're in that older generation, maybe you're a little closer to that appointment with death than others. Here's what I want to encourage you to do. 
I want to encourage you to work to increase your flexibility. So instead of having something that's taken from you, you're able to give it away. Nobody likes to have something taken from you, do you? Nobody likes you to take something from you. But almost everyone finds joy in giving something away. So here's what, work to increase your, your flexibility and your elasticity so that you can give the church away. Now I get it, I get it. Our world is changing at a rapid pace. And, and let's be real honest, even those of you that are in a younger generation, we don't do well with change, period. We, we don't like change, we resist change, we fight change at every, at every corner, but everything in the world is changing. And you might tend to think, the one thing that I have some control over, I have no control over everything else that changes, but the one thing that I have some control over and that shouldn't change is the church. And so by George, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dig in and the church isn't going to change, right? Well, what good is a church that is stuck in the 18th century when we live in the 21st century? It doesn't work real well. And when... And so, so hear me on this, and please hear my heart on this. To those of you in the older generation, remember back when you were younger. And there were probably a couple times when you were frustrated with the pace of change, right? And things weren't changing the way you thought they should, and they weren't changing as fast as you thought they should. And you began to get frustrated, right? Don't be that group of people. Don't be the people that you were once frustrated with. When Joshua's generation died, their connection to God died with them. Not because they didn't believe in God, but because the experiences of Moses and Joshua and, their, and those generations, had they were their experiences. They were not the experiences of the generation coming behind them. It was not the experiences of the next generation. And many of you, many of you in this room and will be in this room later today have experienced God moving and doing incredible things here at Glendale Christian Church. And you should be proud of, of what you have worked alongside of God to build here at Glendale Christian Church. You've worked hard to build the kingdom of God. But those have been your experiences, not the experiences of those who are in the next generation, not the experiences of those that are in Kids Church right now. They haven't had those same experiences. So here's, here's what we see is that simply telling stories of what God has done in the past is not an effective leadership development process, and it's not effective discipling. We can tell our kids all the stories that we want about what God has done for our church, what God has done throughout, world, throughout the world, but if we don't ever let them experience what God is doing through our church, then they will, then they will grow up to be a generation that turns away from the Lord. If you don't believe me, just ask the generation that was in the Bible. I mean, this generation in the Bible turned away from God, right? What we see here is that the church is only one generation away from being extinct. We are only one generation removed from not knowing the Lord. So it's incumbent upon all of us, old generation, younger generation, next generation, whatever, it's incumbent upon all of us to be, to be discipling and developing the next generation, not being consumed with methods, but paying more attention to principles and people. We get so caught up in methodology, what style of music we sing, uh, how we serve communion, the order of service, what the preacher wears, all of those things, they might be important to you. 
but they're probably not important to your grandkids. I ask sometimes people who are resistant to change, especially change in the church, do you want your grandkids to come to church? And guess what every God-fearing grandparent says? Absolutely. Of course I want my grandkids to be in church. I want my grandkids to love church. Then why would you not work to make the church a place where your grandkids want to be? So you've got two options. You can hold on with a death grip to the past. And when you die, and you will, it will die with you. Or you can begin now to focus on the future, to focus on the next generation, to focus on what God is trying to do right now in the present and and moving the church forward. But here's the thing about focusing on the future. You can't do that while you're living in the past. You cannot focus on the future while you're living in the past. All right, so older generation, I've hammered you for a little bit. Now let me turn to the younger generation. Let me ask you to do this, to pay attention and to be patient. Be patient and pay attention to what's going on in the church around you. Be an active participant in bridging the gap from the previous generation to your generation. Because here's what I can tell you about every older generation that I've ever worked with in the church is that they love the church and they love you. And, what they, and really what they want more than anything else is for the church to succeed past them, for the church to strive. So pay attention and be patient. Remember, most of these people have 60, 70, maybe even more years invested in building up the church. So, so don't dishonor that by taking. Don't, don't simply rip it from them. Be patient and work with them so that there's a, there's a handoff. If we learn anything from the death of Joshua, I think what we learn is that it takes an intentional handing off of the church to the next generation. And when that happens, when that happens, the church, the church thrives The church flourishes. The church grows. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people come to know the Lord when the church is intentional about handing off off from one generation to the next. Now, I want to change gears for just a little bit because because the the great thing about the book of Judges, and while there are some important leadership uh, principles in here, the great thing about the book of Judges is the stories that are found in the book of Judges. And so for the next couple minutes, just real briefly, I want to look at chapter 3. Because in chapter 3, we're introduced to some of the Judges, and the first one that we meet is is one of the first ones that we meet is a guy named Ehud. And uh, Judges chapter 3, verse 12 says, once again, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. There's this they have been through this cycle. They're back to doing evil. There's a generation that, that doesn't know the Lord. And, and the Lord gave King Eglon of Moab control over Israel because of their evilness. We're back in the cycle of rebellion again. So God punishes them. Now, we don't know a whole lot about King Eglon, but we know that he was not a nice guy. And for 18 years, the Moabites ruled over the Israelite people. And King Eglon was in charge, and there were a lot of... Um, social casualties among the Israelites because of King Eglon's rule. But verse 15 says, But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for the help, for help, the Lord again raised up a rescuer to save him, and his name was Ehud, son of Gera, a left-handed man of the tribe of Benjamin. 
So we're introduced to, to Ehud, and we're given this little bit uh, piece of information that he's left-handed. If you dig into the, to the original text a little more, we find out why he's left-handed. It literally means that phrase that he was left-handed, it literally means unable to use his right hand. Now, that probably means that he had some sort of physical handicap. Maybe he had a withered right hand. He, he was born that way, or maybe as a child he was in an accident and it was crushed. But we, we don't know, but what we do know is that he can't use his right hand. And so Ehud, even though he's got this disability, he is picked to go and deliver the tribute money. The, I call it the mafia money. You, you give us so much money and we'll keep you safe. He's picked to go give the money to King Eglon. And so before he goes, he makes a double-edged dagger and straps it to his right thigh. So think uh, like a concealed carry knife type thing. And he, he's, we're given this little bit of information in verse 17 about King Eglon. It says that he is very fat. Now, that's gonna, we, th- we read that and we think, okay, so are a number of other people, big deal. But, but that's going to come into play here in just a little bit. Let's pick it up in verse 18, chapter 3, verse 18. It says, after delivering the payment, Ehud started home with those who had helped carry the tribute. But when Ehud reached the stone idols near Gilgal, he turned back. He came to Eglon and said, I have a secret message for you. And so the king commanded his servants, be quiet. And he sent them all out of the room. Now, just real quickly, we think that's probably not a very good uh, leadership principle, is it? That you're going to get rid, you're, you're the man in charge, and you've got somebody that's a foreigner in your presence, and you're going to get rid of everybody else. You're going to tell them all. Probably not the best thinking. But again, Ehud's got this withered right hand. He can't use it, so Eglon doesn't see him as a threat. So Ehud walked over to Eglon, who was sitting alone in a cool upstairs room, and Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. He's intrigued the king, and as King Eglon rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, pulled out the dagger strapped to his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. The dagger went so deep that the handle disappeared beneath the king's fat. Again, he was a fat man. So Ehud did not pull out the dagger, and the king's bowels emptied. Then Ehud closed and locked the doors of the room and escaped down the latrine. After Ehud was gone, the king's servant returned and found the doors to the upstairs room locked. They thought he might be using the latrine in the room, probably because of what has just happened. There's probably a smell there. I'm just, just reading the Bible. So, <laughs> so they waited. But when the king didn't come out after a long delay, they became concerned and they went and got a key. And when they opened the door, they found their master dead on the floor. Now, oftentimes today, but especially in ancient cultures, Someone with a physical disability, those people that had those kind of disabilities were regarded as useless in their society. We see that oftentimes today. We, we discard people that are disabled. We tell them they, there's not really a, a role for you. There, there's not a function for you. you, you just, you're useless. We, we see that happen a lot in our culture. But that was especially, especially prevalent in ancient culture. Because of Ehud's disability, he would have been an unlikely savior for the Jewish people. And King Eglon would not have expected Ehud to to have been an assassin. But Ehud didn't let his physical handicap stop him from serving God. Some of you in this room, you don't have a physical handicap. But you have a spiritual handicap. You're you're trapped by the sins of, of your past, mistakes made long ago, and you think there isn't a place for you. I've even heard some people and some of you even say things like, like, after all the stuff I've done, 
or if you only knew my past. Well, let me tell you, every, every person has a past, okay? Every person has a past, but every Christian has a future. You might not be perfect. Ehud wasn't either. But God is able to use our weaknesses to become strengths when we become available. Because in the kingdom of God, availability is more important than ability. All right, don't miss that. Availability is always more important than ability. God will, God will give you all the strength that you need, all the tools that you need to do whatever he's called you to do if you are willing, if you are available. And so you might think to yourself, well, what can I do? If you're available then, to God, then God will make you able. Some of you, you it, it needs to start with letting go of the past. You, you've allowed the past to trap you for too long, to, to keep you from doing what you need to do for too long. You need to let go of sins that were committed and find the forgiveness that Jesus makes available to each of us. When Ehud became available, God used him. And it says that the Israelites had peace in the land for 80 years. And then, of course, they went back into their cycle and God had to raise up another judge. And we'll talk more about that next week. But God gave the Israelite people peace because Ehud was available. If you will become available to God, Jesus doesn't just want to give you peace for 80 years. He wants to give you peace for all of eternity. So here's the question for you to consider this morning. Are you available? Are you available to God? If you aren't, then what do you need to do to become available? I think the answer to, begins with seeking out God's forgiveness, that he's ready to pour out over you if you will simply choose to let him. That's the thing is that God doesn't force anybody. God doesn't force anybody to become available. You, you choose that on your own. But if you are available, then God wants to give you peace. And after all, the world that we live in, where everyone does kind of what is right in their own eye, wouldn't we want more peace? I think so. Let me pray for us. Father God, we love you. And we thank you for uh, preserving uh, ancient texts like the one that we've just read from this morning. And Father, we just ask that you would help us to, to, find, to identify the people that we need to pour into as, as leaders who, who we would identify the next generation of leaders that we would identify people in the next generation to raise up, to, to disciple them, to become strong Christians so that they can lead the church past our existence. Father, help us to, to never become the people that we've always become frustrated with. But Father, help us just to be available to, to what you, you're calling us to. Father, we know that you have placed a calling on each of our lives. And if, if, Father, if there are people in this room that don't realize that, that don't know that, Father, I just pray that you would press upon them and, and convict them that you have placed a calling upon their life if they will simply yield their life over to you, if they will simply become available to you. Father, we pray for the peace that passes all understanding. Your word tells us that you give a peace that, that this world simply cannot understand. But it starts with seeking out the forgiveness that only you can give, the forgiveness that washes away sin, the forgiveness that cleanses all unrighteousness, the forgiveness that makes us right with you.
So Father, this morning as we, as we prepare to sing, would you just um, open our eyes, open our hearts, open our minds to your Holy Spirit and its leading. That we might fully trust you, that we might fully surrender ourselves over to you. That we would become available to you. Some of us for the first time, some of us for the 800th time but that we would become available to you. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.